Good morning, everyone. It's really good to be with you today. It's nice to get to Sabbath, isn't it? Take a breath. Uh, what a week it's been. I hope you've been okay this week. Uh, I know it's been uh, challenging for a lot of you, and uh, it's good to come together to worship God, put all that aside, and just rest on this Sabbath. And it's great to be here today. Thanks to Roy and Jenna for inviting me uh, to speak to you again. I wish we could be together, uh, and I hope that we will be soon. Uh, but for now, for this morning, I wanted to share a little story about one of my favourite kings. I don't know if you've got a favourite king in the Bible. Maybe that's a strange thing to have, but one of my favourite kings, or at least a king that I relate to a little bit, is Hezekiah. Uh, he was a king of Judah, and he was one of the few kings who did right in the eyes of the Lord. And considering the family that he came from, it's pretty remarkable that he did that. His father Ahaz followed the pagan ways, uh, and it got so bad that he even sacrificed one of his own sons, Hezekiah's brother, to his pagan gods as a burnt offering. Is it any wonder that Hezekiah didn't like his father's religion? So when Hezekiah came into the kingship, he destroyed those pagan places he tore down the altars to idols. You know, people had even started worshipping the bronze serpent that Moses had made in the wilderness. And so he had that destroyed too, just to stop people worshipping idols. He defied an Assyrian king, Sennacherib, while Jerusalem was under siege. And in his defence, the Lord slew 185,000 Assyrians and saved the city. While he was under siege, he built a tunnel under the walls to bring water into Jerusalem to save his people. And Hezekiah's tunnel is still there today. It's a favourite tourist spot. You can visit it if you like. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord and he kept his commandments. And in return, God blessed him with victory over his enemies. The Bible says Judah never had a king like him before or after. And so I kind of feel bad for Hezekiah because the, one of the stories he's most remembered for is the story I'm about to relate. And it doesn't show him in his best light. And it's one you probably know. Because around the time of the battle with the Assyrian king, Hezekiah grew ill. And the prophet Isaiah came to him with news from the Lord. And the news wasn't good. Isaiah told him that the Lord had said, Hezekiah would not recover from this illness, that he would die. Let me read what happens next. The story is in 2 Kings chapter 20, and I'm going to read verses 2 and 3. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept. Italy. I can understand that. He's afraid for his very life. So Isaiah leaves the king to his prayers. But Isaiah hasn't even gotten across the courtyard before God sends him another message for Hezekiah. So Isaiah goes back in and tells Hezekiah this good news. God has heard your prayers and has given you another 15 years of life. That's remarkable. 
Hezekiah wonders if this could even be true, and asking for proof, the shadow which had been moving forward up the stairs now moved backwards ten steps down. I don't know how God did that. Did he change the very rotation of the earth to show a sign to Hezekiah? Pretty amazing. Now, something was happening around that time. In verse 12, we see that one of the neighbouring kingdoms had heard about Hezekiah's illness. Have a look, 2 Kings 20 in verse 12. At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. How hospitable of him to send presents and a letter to the ailing king. So the envoys bring these letters and presents to Hezekiah, who's now well, and here's where Hezekiah does a very natural thing for a human being. He shows off. Have a look in verse 13. It says, Hezekiah received the envoys and showed them all that was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the fine olive oil, his armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. King Hezekiah shows them his wealth. Let me ask you something. Are you a show-off? Were you the kid standing perched on the side of the pool screaming, look at me, look at me, just before a spectacular leap into the water? Seeing as I'm a preacher and regularly stand in front of hundreds of people talking, I'll let you make your own judgment about me. But Hezekiah gives in to the urge to show off what he owns. He's the king, after all, and isn't that what being the king's all about? Being rich, what you have? And he shows them through the palace, gives them the tour of the storerooms, the armory, all of his weapons, so they know where all the valuables are. They've got a chance to inspect the wealth of Israel. And after they've gone, Isaiah makes one more visit to Hezekiah. He comes in and says, hey, who were those guys? What did you do with them? And Hezekiah confesses to Isaiah, well, I showed them everything. I gave them the grand tour. And Isaiah gets one more word from the Lord for Hezekiah, and it's not good. And it's in verse 16 and 17. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. But Hezekiah breathes a sigh of relief when he finds out it will happen to his descendants and not him, showing that even for a very good king, it could be a little selfish. So here's the question. Why was Hezekiah showing off? When these envoys came, wouldn't the miracle of his extended life be something he should have mentioned? Wasn't Israel there to be a light to the surrounding nations and to share God with them? I guess we ask, why does anyone show off? For me, the answer is in what Hezekiah shows them. He shows them the riches they have. No doubt he's heard of this rich Babylon, those hanging gardens, a wealthy, powerful nation. So he starts to compete and compare himself and his kingdom to them. 
He tries to win approval from these foreign envoys on the basis of what they think is important. By doing this, Hezekiah compromises his identity as a king who follows God. His sense of self-worth is no longer in his God. It's in his belongings. And that's a question we all confront, I think, today. Who are you? What is at the core of your identity? Who are you as a person? Generally, when you meet someone for the first time, they don't ask you, who are you? That might be a bit philosophical for most first conversations. If you're at a social engagement, you're at a party or you meet someone for the first time, what's the most common question asked? Well, if you're an adult, it's what do you do? As in, what's your job? And the answer is important, right? How you answer tells the person a lot about you. After all, if this is your chosen profession, then it must mean that you enjoy it. And before you know it, you tie your identity to your job. And it's the first impression people get of you. They may even set you on a social scale, depending on what you say. Are you a CEO or are you unemployed? Who's of more worth, the CEO or someone who's unemployed? Well, most people and maybe society would say the CEO. And I think that's because the world bases identity primarily on performance. In a performance sense, in what you can achieve, the CEO may be contributing more taxes and the company may even be doing great good in the world. But what the world does is goes a little extra step, the dangerous extra step, and says that, That person, that CEO, is more important, is more valuable than someone who's unemployed. It tries to tie your self-worth into your worldly value. And that's a mistake. Let me explain a little more what I mean. Because I think every single one of us is impacted on a daily basis by this. From a very young age, we're taught that performance brings reward. Now, at school, they give out stickers or gold stars as a reward for performing well. And I remember striving to earn those gold stars so I could go home, show my mum and dad, and they would be proud of me. That was my reward. I would get a gold star and I would have my parents be happy with me. And I know school has changed a bit since I went to school, and I think they've got a really good focus and they're focused on each student individually reaching their potential. But it's still true that those who perform better at school will be rewarded more. And it doesn't get any easier at school when you go through the years and you become a teenager. Teens are especially targeted by the entertainment industry, for example. And the message they get is this. You had better perform if you want to be liked or popular. You better listen to the right music. You better wear the right clothes. You better have the right technology. You better have the right mobile phone. You better have the right haircut, the right friends. Go to the right concerts. It's not easy navigating high school. It can be tough, and you're constantly being judged for your performance. And your value as a person seems to be decided by everyone else, depending on how you perform in those areas. 
And let me just stress, doing well at school, uh, getting good grades, dressing nicely, all those things, there's nothing wrong in and of that themselves. The problem arises when those things are linked with our core identity and our self-worth. And that's what happens at school. Only it doesn't just happen at school, does it? And this might be bad news for those of you about to leave school and who are excited about being grown up. But let me tell you, the fun continues at work because most of the adult world is based on performance as well. Because to get into uni, you get judged on what uni you go to. You get judged on what job you get. When you get a job, you'll have key performance indicators you have to meet to perform in that job or you might lose your job. Your worth in life will be judged depending on your performance in several areas. What kind of job do you have? How much do you earn every year? What kind of car do you drive? What kind of clothes do you wear? What suburb do you live in? What gender are you? What sports team do you support? Where do your kids go to school? What clubs do you belong to? What health fund are you in? How's your retirement fund going? There's a lot of things that we'll be judged on as adults. And all these things are fine to be different in and not bad in and of themselves, but it's when we judge people and attribute a self-worth to them as human beings on the basis of that performance that we run into trouble. Because by falling into that trap, into that mouse trap that we're running in, we let others assign our self-worth to us. And we willingly give it up. Hezekiah gave the power to the Babylonians by showing off, by seeking approval. And the result is that he had everything taken from him by a more powerful, more rich, stronger nation. So having a nice job or a nice car or supporting your favourite football team is not bad intrinsically. When we take that and make that a part of our core identity, when we consider that it's those things that make us unique and special, then we fall into a trap and we can let our worth be decided by an external group of people, by an arbitrary set of criteria. And you might say to me, oh, we're, we're all followers of Christ here in the church. We're all united in Christian love. But it's in the church as well. Performance can creep into the church too. It can creep into how we do church itself. And anyone who's ever sat on a nominating committee will know that there are some people who feel they own a particular office in church. Perhaps they've done that job for a long time. And if you try and move them out of that role, they might well leave the church because of it and take it personally. They may feel they've lost prestige if they've been asked to stop doing that role. Some roles in church are seen as more important, more prestigious. But this is because we're judging on performance again. All roles within the church are equally important. Worse, some people think that they are more important than other people because of that role. Are you the elder or are you the deacon? How else could it happen in church? One of the first questions I was asked when I went to an Adventist church was, are you a carnivore? Are you more special? Are you more holy if you're a vegetarian? Maybe it's about the offering. Have you ever had to cover up how much you put in the offering bag? You feel guilty that you're not putting in as much as other people. 
It's a performance-based mindset. I had a friend who would always boast that they got up at 5 a.m. to do their morning devotionals. So that made them a, a better Christian. It's instead turned our religious life, our spiritual life, into a performance for God, trying to be good for him to earn his approval. That's not a good attitude to have. And I guess that's why we come to church sometimes and put on the everything's fine face. We're worried that we'll be judged, that our flaws will be pointed out. Instead, we point the flaws out in others. We point out the logs in others' eyes in an attempt to make ourselves feel better about our own performance in church. Why are we like this? And we encounter this performance-based mindset in the world and in the church every day. And I think we're like this because our identity has been stolen. It's uh, identity theft on a grand scale. Because like Hezekiah, we've been convinced that our self-worth relies on the identity as given to us by others and that we need their approval to be happy. And like Hezekiah, we spend so much time and effort in the pursuit of that approval that we forget what we're here for in the first place, which is to be a light to the lost. And why do we even bother doing it? It's a trap. If you feel that you are special because of your wealth, it won't be long before someone richer comes along. And where does that leave your sense of identity, your sense of self-worth? If you feel special because you're good-looking, what if someone better-looking comes along? If you think you're the funniest person in your group, what happens if someone who's funnier than you comes along? Who are you on the inside when you fail to compete? If we seek happiness and approval based on our performance, we're doomed to failure and disappointment. And we're not the first to be challenged like this, of course, because Jesus encountered this with Satan. Have a look at Matthew 4, verses 3 and 4. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here we see Satan questioning Jesus. And the point that he's questioning him around is his identity. If you are the son of God. He's asked to prove it by performing. Turn these stones to bread. Show us your performance. But Christ doesn't fall for it. He says, I don't live on bread alone, but on the word of God. Verses 5 to 7, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, Jesus is challenged on his identity if you are the son of God. Satan wants him to doubt that he is the son of God. He's asking Jesus to perform. But he denies Satan. He's secure in the fact that he is the son of God. In verse 8 to 10, again the devil took him to a very high mountain 
and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan knows exactly who Jesus is. He wants him to give up his identity and bow down to worship him. And this is the same question and doubt that Satan will come to us with every day. Are you really a child of God? He's trying to cut you off from the source of your true identity, which is God, because that, I think, foremost and above all should be the source of our identity. The fact that God created us and calls us his children, that should be what's in the core of us. And it's so important to God that Jesus died on the cross to establish that relationship so that we could be called the children of God. And that death on the cross is what gives us infinite value in God's eyes, not our performance, but the gift of Jesus and his life. That's where our true value lies. God sacrificed his only son for us. How valuable are we if Jesus suffered and died for us? Have a look at John 1, verses 10 to 12. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who receive Christ have been given the right to be called the children of God. What does it mean to be a child of God? It means we're free from the performance-based life that we've been living. No one can control us through our performance. Our core identity is no longer based on our own individual performance. Our sense of self-worth is not based on our possessions or our belongings or, or what we own stacked up in our bookcases. Our worth and our value is anchored securely in our relationship with God. We're free from peer pressure. We won't be scared of others' opinions. When we have the love of God, that's foundational for us. And that love is not based on my behaviour, but on his character, which is unchangeable. It will never go away. And if God loves someone else as much as he loves me, I don't need to be jealous of that. You know, I remember working for Australia Post and applying for a supervisor's role that I dearly coveted. I really wanted to get it. And uh, I interviewed well, but someone did a little better. And when I was taken in by the manager to be given the news that I hadn't been successful, she brought in a box of tissues. She expected this to devastate me. Because for a lot of people, their job is intrinsic to their core identity. But it didn't shake me. It didn't faze me. It didn't worry me. I didn't need to get that job to prove myself to anyone or even myself. And when I wasn't upset, she said, well, I thought you'd be really, you want this. And she knew how much I wanted it. But I said, yeah, but my identity is not wrapped up in my job. It's wrapped up in Jesus. And I was able to give her a testimony because she was just, 
unbelievable. She said it was just unbelievable that I didn't care. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I didn't need to prove myself to anyone anymore because I knew I had the love of God. Trying to show off to Babylon didn't end well for Hezekiah. His kingdom lost everything. He gave it all away for nothing. And that's how much the approval of others is worth when it comes to basing our identity on it. Nothing. Only the approval of God is of value. Romans 8, 38, 39 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we have a choice today. Will we let ourselves be defined by others? Will we put our value in their hands? Will we put our value in our performance in this world? Or will we let Christ claim us as his own and take up our identity as children of God? Now we can live in a, a constant state of worry, seeking the approval of others through our performance, or we can live a life free of that fear, liberated from seeking our own glory, because everything we do is now for God. You're a child of God. Nothing can or ever will change that. When the core of your identity is anchored in that fact, the experience of freedom will be yours. Let's pray. Father, we want to be free from the expectations that are placed on us. Lord, we want to claim the identity that you've given us to be your children. And I pray that we can cast off all the burdens that are placed on us, all the expectations of performance. I pray that when we do something, we do it for you and not to impress others or for a sense of self-worth. I pray that our self-worth be anchored firmly in you, unshakable, immovable, and firm. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the love that you've shown us through the cross. We ask that every day you keep us focused on him. We pray this in his name. Thank you.